Well, I think it was, I thought of this uh, this morning. Um, it was 1850, and it was in Bristol, England, and it was in the midst of a blizzard. And so a man was cut short on his journey, and so he made it into a small Methodist church, primitive Methodist church. And there was hardly anyone there, uh, just a few people. Uh, the pastor was snowed in, so he couldn't come, he couldn't preach. And so a little skinny, uh, frail man, a layperson, stood up, preached a simple but Bible-centered message, just a few minutes long. And it led to the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, perhaps the, the greatest preacher who has ever lived, uh, was converted that morning. Well, I don't know if Charles Spurgeon is with us this morning, or the next Charles Spurgeon. Um, but I, I do have high hopes for our time together this morning. Um, I, you know, I'm speaking to a room full of eternal souls. So in this church, and as I look out among you, I know that we have a lot of different professions. We have uh, a hairdresser, we have an entrepreneur, we have those working in the private sector, those in natural gas, those in the public sector as well. We have a number of stay-at-home moms, uh, some in sales like myself, and we are busy people. Um, our lives are consumed with the, just the busyness of the work week. Our lives are consumed with um, the activities of being parents, of having children, of activities that they're engaged in. And on top of that, you have just the you know, unforeseen nuisances, like, like Justin spoke of, of maybe a fender bender or you know, some kind of sickness. And so often our minds are just preoccupied with, with all sorts of things, just full of things that can be a distraction. And so this morning, in light of all the responsibilities and the work schedules and even the upcoming things that may actually be on your mind right now concerning the upcoming work week, maybe it's going to be really busy for you, um, if you could please for a moment uh, focus on this truth that I'm about to say. And that is, every person in this room, every one of you, myself included, um, there's coming a day when you will breathe your last and your heart will stop beating and you will die. And there's coming a day when you will stand before your Creator and you will give an account for your life. This is the reality that's going to face every single one of us. And it is this reality and it is this moment that I want to take kind of a, a further and a deeper look into this morning. And so what we're going to do is, is first we're going to take a look at the coming judgment and what the scriptures say about the coming judgment for all of humanity. And second, at the doctrine of eternal rewards, which I believe will be meted out on that day. And so today, there, there really isn't too much debate among Protestant evangelicals regarding the day of judgment. There are different variations, but virtually everyone agrees that, that all of humanity will have to give an account to their creator. But in our day and age, there, there is some controversy over the issue of eternal rewards. So there, there are more or less two basic views. You have one view that asserts that every believer, based upon the faithfulness in their life, 
will be individually and uh, will be discriminately rewarded based upon their obedience and faithfulness in this life. That's one prevailing view. And a second kind of major view of rewards would be that we are all saved by grace, not by any merit of our own. We're saved freely by God's grace. And so therefore, we in no way should say that uh, Christians will be able to have some sort of uh, merit regarding rewards in the life to come. And in fact, when Scripture speaks of our eternal rewards, it's generally speaking of the same thing for all believers, and that eternal reward is heaven itself. So before we, we, we jump into the Word, and, and it's going to be pretty obvious, I think, where I stand on these things once we get into specific texts, but before I do that, I just want to say that uh, this is something we've reiterated a number of times at this church, and I think it's important to kind of remind us um, that, uh, and Lee has said this a number of times, but there are first, second, and third order doctrines. Um, that's one way to think through and to prioritize importance as far as certain doctrines. And so first order doctrines would be things that are salvific. So the uh, substitutionary atonement, that we are saved by justification by faith alone, the, the literal and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are first-order doctrines. If you reject first-order doctrines, then you're sub-Christian. In fact, you're not a Christian at all. And then you have second-order doctrines, which would include things generally referring to, like, church structure. And so do you believe that the Bible says that you can have uh, female pastors? Do you believe that the Bible teaches that infants should be baptized, or should you be baptized after you believe? Um, and so these, these sort of things, the, the kind of your view of the Lord's Supper, these second-order doctrines, you, you're still a believer, um, but you're probably not members of the same church, and you're probably not going to be engaged in church planning together because of those differences. And then you have third-order doctrines, which I believe uh, you can be members of the same church, and in fact, I think you'd be, even be part of the same leadership team uh, overseeing a church, and have disagreement over those doctrines. Things like charismatic gifts, things like uh, eschatological issues, end times issues, um, post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial, those types of things. Uh, you can have disagreement among uh, even elders within a church. And in fact, uh, we, we do have some disagreement among our elders over those issues. But we don't see that as a point of contention or a point of disunity at all. In fact, we see that as more of a strength. And so this morning, as, as a caveat before I jump into these things, I, I thought it was helpful just to say that this, this doctrine and the nuances of eternal rewards, I think, would probably fall more into that third category. So if after I preach this morning and you disagree, hey, trust me, it's no hard feelings. And, uh, but as, as we are taking our time this morning, we are going through some biblical texts, so eternal important truth for our lives. And so I'm going to address three questions. That's how I've kind of divided this up um, for us this morning. And first question is, what is the great white throne judgment? And the second question is, are heavenly rewards discriminant and individual? And lastly, what are the rewards? So question one, what is the great white throne judgment? Now this this language uh, comes from the passage that, that Greg read earlier, found in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And in verse 11, uh, here, John writes that, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. 
Now we know from, from other scriptures that in fact it is Jesus Christ himself who will be judging. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.1 that Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And in Acts 10.42, Peter declares that Jesus Christ is the one ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. And in Matthew 25.31, Jesus says that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself here, will sit on his glorious throne and there will enact eternal judgment. So this, again, is the reality that's facing every believer. And this is, like again, this is not controversial. There's not really much room for debate here. There's coming a day when we will give an account for our lives and we will stand before our Creator. In short, everyone's future, and again, there's some variations even with this, uh, doctrinally, but um, in short... This is how your future is, is going to work out. So you're going to die, and then you're going to go to heaven if you're a believer, or you're going to go to hell if you're an unbeliever, and then you will await the second coming of Christ. And when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, then everyone will be given a resurrected body. Believers, and I think most of us are aware of the fact that believers will receive this glorified resurrected body. But in fact, Scripture also teaches that unbelievers will receive a resurrected body. In Acts 24, 15, Paul says that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So both the justified will be resurrected and the uh, unjustified, those who are not believers. And so it's really a, a wonderful thought and a beautiful thought that believers will be given eternal resurrected bodies to enjoy paradise and the bliss of being with their creator and being with Jesus Christ face to face and with the, 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 the great universal church with all believers together, that will be a great and glorious thing in this resurrected, glorified, physical body. But on the other hand, it's a terrifying thought, is it not, that there will be an eternal body given to those who um, are not believers. And they will feel in a very tactile sense the wrath of God for all eternity. And so again, this is something that there's not much room for debate Either you're a Christian and your future is heaven, or you're an unbeliever and your future is hell. You're either you're in or you're out. You're a believer or you're not. And so even before we get into the nuances of heavenly rewards, it's very important to articulate this truth. Judgment is coming for all humanity. So are you prepared to meet your Creator? We aren't promised another day, another hour, another minute. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He offers salvation freely to all who will repent of their sins. All who will submit the knee to Jesus Christ will be saved. In fact, I believe that was one of the verses that led Charles Spurgeon to believe. He pointed to this, this frail man, looked to Christ, looked to Christ, and it pierced his heart, and he believed. So, point one, or question one, uh, what is the great white throne judgment? And now let's move into to question two, where we'll spend the majority of our time. And the question is, are heavenly rewards discriminant and individual? 
Well, before we answer that question, I, I think that Scripture also addresses the doctrine, or I guess the teaching of varying degrees of punishment for unbelievers. And so maybe that's something uh, that isn't thought of too frequently. But in Matthew eleven twenty two, Jesus says to the cities of Chorazin and to Sidon, or to Chorazin and Bethsaida, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus said that if Tyre and Sidon had seen his miracles, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But Chorazin and Bethsaida did not, and their punishment will be greater than those ancient cities on the day of judgment as a result. Or in Luke 20, 45 through 46, Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, you will receive the greater condemnation. So greater condemnation to the scribes and the Pharisees. And similarly, I, uh, I'm convinced, and uh, we're going to go to these passages, um, I'm convinced that there will be varying degrees of rewards given to believers. And so if you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 5, verses 5, 5 through 15. And again, uh, I, I don't want you to be convinced just solely on what I say, but from the Word of God. So um, please take time to really look and to read and follow along with me as we read the Word of God here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. <clears throat> what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, and as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward." If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So again, let's, let's look at verses 5 through 9 a little, little more um, closely here. And what's going on here is, is Paul's giving metaphors for two types of Christian work. So you have one who is planting and one who is watering. And so the metaphor is that of an agricultural metaphor. If you take a plant and uh, uh, say like a, I don't know, a soybean, you need to you have someone who plants it. And then for that to survive and to flourish, you also need someone to tend to its needs and to water it. And so Paul is saying, I, I was one who planted the church, 
here in Corinth. So he goes to Corinth. There's no believers. He goes, he preaches the gospel, he wins converts, and he organizes and structures a church. He plants the church. And now Apollos comes on after the church has been established, and he, he does the watering. So he tends to the church's needs. He teaches the word, preaches the word, and in general, he's ministering to the needs of the, of the congregation and, and making sure that they are spiritually growing and thriving in the Lord. And so there's two types of work. And they have the same purpose. Notice verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Here, uh, there's other translations that can be a little helpful here. Uh, for example, the NIV says that he who plants and he who waters are of one purpose. So there's one purpose, so there's one who plants and one who waters, but the purpose is the same for the upbuilding, the edification of these believers. They're after the eternal good of people for the glory of God. The purpose is the same. They're not two different works that are separate and at odds with one another, but they're working toward the same goal. And notice here as well, in, in 8b, that each one will receive his wages according to what? You receive your wages. All other translations actually translate, translate verse 8b as reward. But each will receive his wages according to his labor or his work. So the point here, I think, is that your reward or your wages are given on account of the work that's being done. And so it's not a matter of just what the type of work you're doing, but how you're doing it. So Paul says, you know, I'm planting, Apollos is watering. It's not like there's some kind of hierarchy within, within the, the, the certain roles that they've been called to. But what does matter is how the work is being done. And so it can be done in a God-glorifying fashion or it can be done in a very poor fashion. And in verse 14, we see, we see the same sort of verbiage as, as verse 8. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. In other words, again, it's not necessarily what you do, assuming that what you're doing is kingdom work, but rather how you do it. And so I would assume here uh, that, that most of us would fall into maybe more of the Apollos-type works. And so obviously Lee planted the church, but then Ephesians 4.12 says that the saints are to do the work of the ministry. So all of us, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, as First Peter says, are all ministering continually to one another. And so the question is, is the work that you're doing, is it quality work? So there's, and I guess you could maybe you know, extrapolate that a little bit more, and that planting work uh, maybe could ex expand into uh, the work of evangelism. So are we uh, sharing the gospel with neighbors and coworkers or praying to that end for unbelieving friends and families? Are we giving financially to propagate the advancement of the gospel? And then again, watering work such as uh, tending to the, to the needs of the saints, uh, helping a brother who's in need or a sister who's in need, uh, teaching Sunday school, serving our little ones in the nursery, 
there um, are opportunities to do that in actually uh, certain positions that we've been longing to have filled for a while. And these are irrelevant responsibilities. In fact, Paul is saying, hey, listen, we're talking about eternally significant work that you could be, in, be engaged in. And so one way in which to uh, jump in concerning the work of the ministry is to get involved. Um, are you engaged in the lives of others? Are you showing hospitality? Are you um, inviting others into your home? Are you loving others? Are you sharing uh, the scriptures with others in your family and in your church? And so, you know, I, I guess so there, there's, that's kind of what's going through my mind here is we want to be thinking through, okay, man, so maybe I am doing some work, but how do I know if it's gold, silver, and precious stones, or is it wood, hay, and straw? Well, I think, one, again, like you need to be engaged in the work itself and ministering to other believers, but also, two, I think that there is the motivation of the heart behind the reward, which is important, too. And I say this really coming from, from Matthew 6. Are you doing work, and, and are you serving the Lord um, to receive praise from others, to receive praise from others in the church, praise from men, or are you doing it to receive praise from God? And then also, is it done in love? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13 says, he said, Paul says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So there's also a a way in which you could be very busy doing work, but perhaps it's wood, hay, and straw just because it's done with just a selfish, maybe a proud, maybe a heart that's seeking the praise of men and not the Lord. So again, let me reiterate that the basis for a heavenly reward, what I see in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-15, is based upon our work. And I think often evangelicals have, have wrongly concluded from this passage that this judgment of rewards is based upon a Christian's character or, or growth in godliness rather than, than work. And, and I think that's doing um, an injustice to the text. And so that is, you know, it's this understanding and this entire kind of theology that says that a person can make a profession of faith and then from that point forward that they can go on living however they want. Uh, you know, in total rebellion, in disobedience, in habitual, um, unrepentant sin, and complete ungodliness, disregard for, for the, the commands of Scripture and the teaching of Scripture and the submission of Christ, and to think, well, it doesn't matter. I made that profession of faith. I don't need to persevere um, because I'll just be like the, first, the guy in 1 Corinthians 3, you know, verse uh, 5 or verse 15, and that is, uh, in the end, I'll receive a reward. You know, it may be by the skin of my teeth that I make it into heaven. Actually, I may even have the stench of, of fire on me, but I made it nonetheless. Well, again, I, I don't see that going on in this passage because the basis of the rewards is, is the ministerial work. It's, it's not an issue of character that's going on here in this passage. And then elsewhere, Paul says, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Beloved, he says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the New Testament is clear that if a person's life is void of godliness, he belongs not to Christ and the Spirit, but to the world and to the flesh. And how many times I've heard well-intended believers 
speak of others in their lives who, who are characterized by all sorts of, of unrighteousness. And they'll say, well, you know, it's fine, though, because um, they'll just have less rewards in the life to come. A lot of these passages and, and those that, that do not hold to discriminate rewards, a guy like Craig Blomberg makes very compelling arguments based upon the fact he says a lot of that injustice to biblical texts is being done in the name of this easy believism. And so they go to a number of passages like Galatians 5, or they go to a passage um, uh, like 1 Corinthians 9 as far as running the race and uh, striving to get the prize that's set before you and, and obtaining that crown of righteousness is really referring to eternal life itself, not different rewards among believers. So moving on, uh, as far as other texts, that uh, address this issue of discriminant rewards is found in Matthew 20. So now turn with me to, to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, specifically verses uh, 20 through 27. And here we have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and she comes to Jesus, and she asks if her sons could sit at the right and at the left of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, if there's ever a time to refute the notion of discriminate rewards, this would be it. Jesus would answer, well, of course. Yeah, that's a ridiculous question because you're assuming some sort of heavenly hierarchy here. There's not going to be a person on my right, a person on my left. No, there are indiscriminate rewards for all believers in heaven. But he doesn't do that. But in fact, interestingly, he actually affirms uh, her assertion. And in verse 23, Jesus says, But to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So it's an interesting and a wild thought to think that there's going to be a human being, a person to the right and to the left of Jesus Christ in his future kingdom. Billy Graham was once asked who he thought it was. And Billy Graham said something to the effect of, I don't think any of us know his name. Which I think is, is wise. For, for Jesus said, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, another text concerning this, I'd like us to, to look at Matthew 5. So we're going to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus addresses these things a number of times. So in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, we read, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great, in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is where I think is a sticking point um, for, for some that would not hold to discriminate rewards, is here the text is clear that Jesus says the reward is, is not heaven itself, but actually the reward is in heaven. And so for those that receive persecution for their faith in Christ in this life should be glad and should rejoice why? Because great is your reward in heaven. And in the same sermon, Jesus then gives some basic instructions to his listeners about righteous living. 
and he motivates them through the promise of eternal rewards. Now, this very notion makes maybe a lot of us uncomfortable because we do unabashedly hold to justification by faith alone. We are not saved by any merit of our own. There are no works that will obtain a righteous favor from God toward you. That is a false gospel. Absolutely. And so therefore, if I were to tell you that, A, I want to encourage you and to motivate you toward godly living and obedience through promising you that if you do such, you'll receive a reward in heaven. If I said that, and if that was my idea, that'd be blasphemous. That would be heinous. That would be horrible. But it's not my idea. In fact, it's Jesus' idea. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he extrapolates upon that. And he speaks of giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And again and again, he says, you should not do these things this way for the praise of men, but you should do them in this way so that you get your praise from your Father in heaven. And if you do it that way, if you do what I'm saying, then you will have a reward in heaven. In other words, he's encouraged them to do these things by laying out the promise of a future reward. And so sometimes we have certain kind of Christian notions or some kind of things that we grew up with hearing and we just make assumptions, but I I just want to make sure that all of our assumptions and all of the Christian cliches that we hear are filtered by the Word of God. And so clearly this is what I see Jesus as saying. And then we come to Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. This is one of my favorite passages, uh, just because it just affects me. And here Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or I'm sorry, on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says here that our treasures, plural, are not in heaven, but rather are in heaven. So the treasures aren't heaven itself, but they're in heaven. And also notice that the amount of treasures that you have in heaven are dependent upon you laying them up in this life. And that's, that's a powerful thought to me. I, I love the movie The Gladiator. And one of my favorite scenes in that movie are, uh, is, is the beginning, and the Romans are getting ready to engage in battle. And, uh, oh my gosh, I forgot the main guy's name. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Russell Crowe. <laughs> that was the actor, yeah. Uh, Maximus? Yeah, Maximus. And he says to the troops, he says, men, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. And I think that we have biblical support for such a statement. There's one other passage uh, regarding discriminant rewards that I'd like us to hone in on, and that's Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. So please turn with me there. Matthew 19, verses 28 through 30. 
And so if you'll remember, Matthew 19 is Matthew's account of the rich young ruler. And so this man comes to Jesus, and he leaves Jesus sad. And why does he leave Jesus sad? Because he had great earthly wealth. And then Jesus says, you know, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the disciples look at him and say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. And the Peter exclaims, he says, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What's in store for us? And in verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Notice here that the reward is separate from eternal life. Verse 28, Jesus is speaking in the context here of the new world, so the new heavens and the new earth. And he says, um, you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So, there's other parallel passages that speak of a current or present tense uh, receiving of mothers and sisters and brothers. And, and I think that's in the context of the local church that we receive those. But there's also a promise of hundredfold in the world to come. And we'll inherit eternal life. So here eternal life is separate, again, from the reward. And so there's a link in this passage for those who sacrifice very little, they will receive still a hundredfold of that amount in the life to come. But those who have sacrificed much will receive a hundredfold of their sacrifice. So I think there's a theological truth that arises from this principle, and that is you will never outgive God. Never think that I'm making a sacrifice that's too great. Never think that I am doing something that's just maybe a little too costly. Because that's that is absolutely untrue regarding God. God is abundantly, infinitely generous. Every sacrifice you make toward Christ and his kingdom will always result in a net gain. And I think the the parable of the talents, or actually the parable of the minas, are illustrative of this point. So the one who invested five talents received five more, and the one who invested two talents received two more. The first servant, I'm sorry, this is the parable of the talents. The, the first servant then had a total of 10 and the second, four. So again, uh, in summary, so we have question one we addressed. We, in fact, will face the judgment seat of Christ, every one of us. And we will give an account for our lives. In question two, we've been looking at the Bible's teaching on discriminate rewards. And now lastly, what are these rewards? And before I just say, well, we have no earthly idea, um, I, I think there are some scriptures that may give us at least some indication as to what these rewards might entail. 
Because it is true that although heavenly rewards are speaking of in these great grandiose terms of, of being great, of being worth, worthy of pursuit, we aren't given a detailed explanation as to what they are. But we could make some inferences, uh, say from Matthew 19, 28 through 30, the, the passage that we had read earlier, Jesus was speaking to the apostles and said that they would judge on 12 thrones, and that in the age to come, anyone who has made a sacrifice for him will receive a hundredfold blessings of houses, brothers, sisters, children, and lands. Uh, has, and then also the fact of Matthew 20, 20 through 23, we looked at this one earlier as well, that there will be a person at the right and to the left of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, and the fact that we are told in Revelation 22.5 and Daniel 7.27 that we will reign forever with Christ. So this, this may, you know, lead us to believe that a person, uh, or that uh, these rewards may entail some sort of greater responsibility or privilege in the age to come. I think that could be possible. Uh, in the parable of the minus, so, so you've got the parable of the talents, now the parable of the minus, the servant who was faithful with ten minas was rewarded with authority over ten cities. And the one who was faithful with five minas was rewarded authority over five cities. So we do know, in fact, we do know, irrefutably, that there will be cities in the new heavens and new earth uh, because the new Jerusalem is described in great detail. And in fact, as some theologians have uh, thought through the parameters, this new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth uh, will be roughly the size of, actually more than half the size of the continental U.S. That's the size of the city. So this, again, this is a bit speculative, of, you know, but uh, some believe that there might be a sort of greater privilege or responsibility um, toward those. But I would like you to notice, and, and this, is, this is important, that the most desired positions of authority are those closest to Christ. So the disciples wanted to be at his right and his left. And we know from the Apostle Paul that he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. For whose sake he lost all things, he considered them rubbish that he may gain Christ. So at the heart of True doctrine and, and the heart of true conversion is a love for Jesus Christ. If there's not a longing and an aching in your soul, at one, I believe it's in Timothy, um, he speaks of there's a reward coming uh, for all, for himself and for all who long for his appearing. If there's not a longing in your heart for Christ, if there's not a desire to be closer to Jesus, then obviously rewards are the least of your concerns. And Christ is to be our treasured possession. And one of the, the questions that, is, that commonly uh, arises when, when you talk about these, um, say there are discriminate rewards that are meted out on the day of judgment for believers, well, how does that make any sense in light of envy? So if I'm in heaven, and I run into one of you, and clearly your rewards are far greater than mine. Aren't I really going to struggle with jealousy and envy? But some theologians have, have pointed out that, well, there won't be any sin, and so there won't be any envy. So in fact, I'll be overjoyed for the fact that you're receiving such joy 
And you'll be so humble that you won't be able to point to any merit of your own, but surely toward the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards has written extensively regarding that, uh, just some really interesting uh, insights into the next world to come. So in closing, um, I hope you've seen um, and been able to, to think through some of these scriptures. Um, um, and, and again, uh, don't just take my word for it. And if you come to a different conclusion, that's, that's not, not a huge ordeal for, for me at all. Um, but again, uh, to, to review, there, there is coming a day when you will stand before your creator and you will give an account for your life. And again, for believers, this shouldn't be a, a sense of fear or dread at all because Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So be assured, you don't have to worry about your eternal salvation at this point. But again, there is coming a day where you'll stand before him. Let's never forget that. Uh, second, um, are there scriptures that support discriminant rewards? Um, Again, I, I am convinced that there is. And so therefore, we need to, one, be careful how we build. That's Paul's exhortation again in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, be concerned about the quality of your work. Don't just give just haphazardly or don't just give kind of the, the leftovers to the body of Christ. Uh, we are to, go, to do good to all men, but especially to those in the household of the faith, Galatians 5, 9. And so let us be concerned how the quality of how we teach our young people, how we serve one another, put one another first in our lives. And then also uh, be concerned about um, our motives. Are we doing things out of love? Are we doing things for the praise of men or are we doing things for the praise and the glory of God? Uh, in closing, um, I, I was thinking of Oscar Schindler, so many of you uh, maybe have seen Schindler's List. And at the end of the movie, there's this incredibly powerful scene where Oscar Schindler, um, the, the war is now over, and he had spent um, a lot of his time and energy and money in buying uh, Jews um, to protect them from... Um, annihilation to protect them from these these prison camps and from death and the in this scene he's surrounded by the the jews and many of whom he had saved and bought and um, he's looking at his car and he's looking at his ring and he's looking at his watch and he's looking at his gold pens and he's overwhelmed with grief i could have given more i could have given so much more with this ring i could have bought two more and I, I think that's a powerful um, picture for us uh, to be thinking through it in a healthy way of the coming day when we look our Savior in the eye and we'll be given account for our lives. Don't waste your life. C.T. Studd, a missionary in Africa who gave his life to the propagation of, for the propagation of the gospel to those who have never heard, he actually died in a tent. Uh, they found him on his knees. He would get up early and pray throughout the long hours of the night, and that's how they found him. But C.T. Studd said, uh, "'Tis one life 
will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.